past couple of Lord's Days, we have labored to establish a foundation for worship. I believe that the church, especially in our day, or for that matter, I believe there is great importance for us to have a rationale and a foundation for what we do individually and what we do corporately as a body of believers when it comes to the issue of worship to our God. Remember, Jesus told the Samaritan, the woman at the well, that she did not know what she was worshiping. In other words, she was a false worshiper and she exercised in what we would call false worship. This raises a question of why we do the things that we do. Have you ever thought about that, coming to a Southern Baptist church in the state of Missouri at First Baptist Ozark, and we do certain things? Well, I think when it comes to engaging and worshiping our God, we ought to stop long enough and think about the rationale or, or why we actually do what we do. And if you are new to First Ozark, then this sermon will be a good sermon for you to think about uh, well, I'm a new member here, and I'm coming to this church, and now I understand why we do certain things when it comes to singing. And if you've been here for quite some time, then I think this sermon can kind of stir up some uh, a response in you, if you've been here for quite some time, so that we steer clear of empty worship, which we don't want that to be the case, as the people of God, that we're in empty worship. So we've learned... Learned last week that we must worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. How many of you remember that? Wave at me. You remember that sermon? Spirit and in truth. And we're going to talk about that particular element next week as we talk about worshiping when it comes to the Word. But today I want to focus our attention, attention on worshiping in the spirit and in truth. And the focus will be upon singing. Now, a few weeks ago you had vacation Bible school. Have you ever noticed the phenomenon of when you actually play music and you've got toddlers listening? That's an amazing thing, isn't it? To watch them spin around. And, I mean, I can remember Timothy sitting in the back seat and we were listening to gospel music going down the road or whatever that might be back in the day. And he'd just start rocking. From the time he was six months old, you're, you just, it just moves your affections. And their little souls began to respond to music. And so no matter what time you've lived, or no matter what the culture, there is always singing. Now, did you know that the Bible is really big on singing? And so what I want to do is to find out today what the Word has to say. What does the Bible tell us about singing? That's going to be the first thing we're going to do. Second, we're going to ask, why do we have an emphasis upon singing in this particular church family? That's the second thing. And then the third one's going to be really interesting to most of you. Why do we sing both old and new songs? Why are we blended in our efforts? I want to remind you that Brother David and I present things to you in a concentrated way on purpose. Because we want it to magnify the God that we belong to. We want our theology to be on, in concert with what is revealed in the Word of God. So we put effort into the planning we just don't throw songs up there randomly. We think about what we're preaching, what we want the church to understand about our God, and we take those songs like, did you notice there was an emphasis upon singing the songs today? How can you keep 
from shouting his praise and singing to him because you're loved by the king. That was the emphasis. So let me give you one text today, kind of an over, overarching text, kind of an umbrella text of actually thinking about singing in the Bible before I give you about six simple Bible facts about singing. Listen to Psalm 96. If you make your way there, for some of you who struggle, that's in the Old Testament. And for the most of you that struggle even more, just take your Bible and put your fingers in the center and just break her open. And good chance it'll open up in the Psalms. Amen. I want to remind you that individually they're called, called Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3. Not Psalms 1, Psalms 2, Psalms 3. You've got the book of Psalms, but you've got individual songs inside of it. 96, Psalm 96. Listen to the word of the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods, you see the note here, small g, of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Okay, six quick. I added one more. I could do that, actually. But six simple Bible facts about singing. Here's the first one. The largest book in the Bible, which occupies the whole in the middle. It occupies that middle of the whole, is a song book. How many of you knew that? I don't see it on the PowerPoint. Is that, is that going to come up there? We hope it does. Yes. You got pen and paper? A little bit of ink is better than the best memory, right? Here we go. The largest book in the Bible, which occupies the middle of the whole, is a song book. Do you know that the book of Psalms, or each individual song in that, is called the Hebrew hymn book? That's what you have in the center of your Bible. And furthermore, it's better than any hymn that's ever been written because this one's inspired. Everything in it was written by our God and given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this is the Hebrew hymn book. In fact, you have multiple psalms that have superscriptions over the psalm, if you've read your Bible. And you'll note that those are cues for how you're supposed to sing that particular Hebrew song. Y'all awake out there? That's what it's about. There are psalms about joy. There are psalms about sadness. There are psalms about everything else in between. And they're all anchored, note this, they're all anchored on the greatness and faithfulness and glory of God. No matter where you are, that's why we love the psalms so much. I remember preaching a series on the psalms in the summer one time, just thinking about psalms in the summer and considering how great and glorious God is. And it doesn't matter what you're going through in life, you can find one of the psalms that fits actually in what you are going through. So please understand this. Number one simple Bible fact, the largest book in the Bible is a song book. Number two, the entire scope of salvation history is marked by singing. What do we mean by that? Well, at the beginning of creation, there was singing. And at the end of the days, there's going to be singing. Listen to Job chapter 38. I think some of you have been studying the book of Job. Natalie's been listening to Dr. Jeremiah 
preach on the book of Job. But remember, Job is kind of giving his complaints to the Lord, and finally God begins to speak, and he begins to interrogate Job. And in one particular place, in Job chapter 38, beginning in verse 4, here's what the Word says, Where were you, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Folks, if you ever think you know more than God, just consider that, all right? Where were you when he laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Listen to this. When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. What do we learn? We learn that in creation, when God laid those foundations, that the very angels sang when God created the world. I want you to understand that's how creation began. And so we get this picture that from the very beginning, when God displayed His infinite creative power and work, that the angels were singing and shouting for joy at the work of God's hands. This is how creation starts. It's how human history starts. It's also how it's going to all end because listen to Revelation 5, 2 in the Word of God. You've got to go all the way to the back. Revelation, excuse me, Revelation 15, 2 says this, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so my point is, at the beginning of creation... There was singing. And at the consummation of the age, there is singing. And in heaven, it is a place of singing. So, the largest book in the Bible is a song book. The entire scope of salvation history from beginning to end is about singing. Or it has singing. Here's the third thing. Many of the significant redemptive events in the Bible are marked by singing. What happens after the children of Israel cross over the Red Sea and they're safe on the other side? You've got, say it with me, singing. That's the very first thing that takes place in Exodus 15. What do they do? They begin to sing. Uh, other significant events in the life of Moses, when the children of Israel, uh, God performs wondrous things going on in the land, they are called by Moses to sing. Think about the one in particular in Psalm, excuse me, in Deuteronomy 32. It's Moses' swan song, and he's about to die, and he says to the people, you need, he teaches them actually how to sing a particular song. And many times after that, the children of Israel are engaged in singing songs. Numerous psalms are written as psalms of ascent. That means that as they were ascending up to Jerusalem to worship, no matter where you were in Israel, as you moved toward Jerusalem to worship that day, guess what they did? They were singing psalms. They were commemorating incredible events that God had, had uh, accomplished. They marched to the holy city singing the psalms of ascent, such as, I was glad when they said unto me, 
Let us go into the house of the Lord. Those are psalms that they're singing. We, know, we learn that the saints are singing in Revelation 14 when the beast is defeated. Significant events that take place. Now consider this. Think about the most significant events in all of history. That being the advent of our Lord. The life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. The early church took to words and began to write down songs that commemorated the most important, significant events in the history of the world, which we would reference the cross and the resurrection without exception. They're writing this. As a matter of fact, if you've ever studied the, the theology of the New Testament, then you will find that there are several passages in the Word of God in the New Testament that were arranged as hymns by the people. And then the Holy Spirit of God inspired them, put them in the text of Scripture. Listen to this one. Think about this event. You know of it. Philippians 2. Most scholars believe it's a song. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that means he was God, did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation, coming in the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. How many of you knew that was an early Christian hymn? Put into the Word of God. Why? Because singing is absolutely important. I could give you the complimentary text, which is Colossians 1, 15-21, but just listen to another one of my favorites. I love to preach this at Christmas time, or the Advent season. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to the Word. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated resurrection, right, in the spirit, seen by angels, ascension, proclaimed among the nations, the gospel going forth, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. That's a song found in the Bible. And they're all following redemptive acts, commemorating the work of God. So the Holy Spirit thought it was very much absolutely important to get those songs into the Word of God so that we will understand that significant events like the life, death, burial, and resurrection, they're commemorated by lifting our voices to the Lord and singing truth back to Him. Number four, the apostles sang. The largest book in the Bible is a songbook. The entire scope of redemptive history begins and ends with singing. Many redemptive events throughout history are marked by singing. The apostles sang, and some of you remember last week, we talked about Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are imprisoned, and they've been beaten, and at midnight, they began to sing to the Lord. Have you ever thought or wondered how the Philippian jailer was converted? Now, we know full well that he was under conviction by the Holy Spirit of God. It would have been enough to convict me to see prison bars open and an earthquake. That would have been enough. But just think of, with me for a moment. Just think about the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that he listened to as perhaps he was chained. And I don't know if you know the history on this, but most jailers were actually retired servicemen. 
And then they would become jailers when they were retired. So this guy was probably older. And he begins to hear the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's hearing truth about Jesus Christ and why Paul and Silas are suffering. And of course, we know the gospel was shared to him. But I guarantee you it was the truth in the songs they were singing that also ministered to his heart. So the apostles sang. Here's the fifth thing. Singing is commanded in the Bible. Now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty, right? Now we're getting down to church life. Singing is commanded in the Bible. And some of you are thinking, well, preacher, I sing through my nose. I actually kind of sound like George Jones. He stopped loving her, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I really don't want to sing in public because I sound more like George Jones and I do like Chris Tomlin, so I really would rather not sing. You have no excuses. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know about him. He's okay, right? Yeah. Johnny Cash talked through his songs, right? But still, the fact of the matter is, you are commanded by God, straightforward, imperative commands in the Hebrew to sing over 50 times in the Bible. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? Now, I want you to understand that that excludes the times when we see phrases like shout for joy or praise to the Lord. So the parallel would be singing and shouting. But if you exclude first-person singular and plural phrases from the word, like I will sing or let us sing, if you just focus on straight, explicit commands, there are over 50 times in the Word of God where you are told and commanded to sing. In Exodus 15, Miriam says, Sing to the Lord. When you look at the commands to sing, almost every time those commands to sing are tied to something that is true about our God. Now think with me for a moment. How often do we just start engaging in singing a song and we haven't even thought about what the song is saying? We're all guilty, right? But in the Bible, when it comes to a song, it is directly tied to a truth about God. Let me give you an example. Exodus 15, when they're singing that song, they said, The Lord is highly exalted and lifted up because He drowned all of Pharaoh's army. It was something that God had accomplished. Sing to Him, sing praises to His name, tell of His wondrous works. And that's what you're doing. You're singing. You're thinking about the truth of God when you sing. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. When we sing, we're, we're proclaiming truth about our God as we're singing. Psalm 511 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. There's gladness and there's joy expressed about truth concerning God as we sing. Psalm 67, 4 says, Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Psalm 92, 1. Let those who know the Lord sing and rejoice in Him. You may be praising Him because He's good. You're praising Him because He is wonderful and holy and majestic, but it has something to do with the truth of our God. And I want to remind you that if God had never done one solitary good thing for you, He is still worthy to be praised and worshipped because of the loveliness and grandeur and glory of His name. He deserves it. He's worthy. Here's the sixth thing. Y'all doing okay? All right. Singing is directly related 
to being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Boy, I'm really on you now, aren't I? I'm going to stop preaching and start meddling, right? It is directly linked to being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. If you've got your copy of God's Word, make your way to Ephesians 5. Let's look at this point. Ephesians 5. There's a direct command in the Word here to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Since I'm in the neighborhood, I might as well tell you, you know, nowhere in the Word of God are you commanded to be baptized with the Spirit. Why? Because baptized or baptism of the Spirit is synonymous with your salvation. It's when you're infused into the family of God. If you don't have my Spirit, you're not my child. Ephesians 1.13 says, On the day you heard the gospel of truth, the word of salvation, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So baptism is not commanded in the Bible because you can't bring about your baptism in the Spirit. It is a gift of God, not of works. And if you're, not, if you're, if you're saved today... Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, If you don't have my spirit, you're not my child. So, you've been baptized if you're saved. And, but it, it never commands you to be baptized with the Spirit, because that's synonymous with the work of the Holy Spirit to save you. But you are commanded in the Bible to be filled with the Spirit. And what does that mean? It means that you're commanded by God to allow the Holy Spirit of God, in child terms, to be the boss of your life. You are controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. So when we read this text, listen. Verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And notice this. He's going to give you four participles of result. You know, your charismatics say that if you're filled with the Spirit, you're going to have all kinds of sensational things and speak in tongues and run around and have Toronto laughter like a dog. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says if you're controlled by the Spirit of God, you're going to have some resulting participles that take place in your life. And here it is. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And last participle, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Y'all see that? Direct, proportionate. This is cause and effect. This is controlled by the Spirit and resulting factor in your life. If you're controlled by the Spirit of God, then you will sing to one another and you will have joy in your heart, making melody in your heart to the Lord in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So as a child of God, if you're under control of the Holy Spirit, the manifestation of the Spirit in your life is that you will have a heart of singing praise to God. Notice this in this text. There's a speaking to one another. There's a speaking to one another. But there's also the melody in your heart before the Lord. So we have a vertical and a horizontal aspect, two of them, of your actual singing to God. When we sing together, when we sing here, we're singing to God, making melody in your heart to the Lord, but you're also singing to one another. Hello, Tokyo. Are y'all out there somewhere? That's what's going on in the narrative, uh, in the uh, teaching of the Word. You're making melody in your heart, but you're speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, we are building one another up with our song. Have you ever gone to a church and worshipped? And, well, you went to a church, I'm not sure they worshipped, but nobody sang except for the director of music. I mean, he's just up there leading music, 
And he's the only one singing. That's pathetic. As a matter of fact, that's dead, isn't it? You know what I do when I go into church like that? I sing as loud as I possibly can. <laughs> just get up on the front row and just sing, 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 and look around at everybody and wonder why they're not singing. Because what is the feeling that you actually have? Well, there's sure no edification from you to me if you're not singing. There's no corporate nature of lifting our voices to the Lord. But I want to be a part of a congregation that sings heartily to the Lord. Because the king is the resident in the castle of your heart. And he's changed you. And you understand that it's not just my voice lifted to God in the melody that should be there. Right? But you're also ministering to those around you. You are speaking to one another in psalms and hymns. There's edification going on. Singing and worship is not defined as watching a group of people lead music. If that's what you think worship is, you've missed it, folks. And maybe you're 80 years old and that's been your attitude. You need to get over it. Because that is not worship. Worship to God is when you engage your affections and there's a melody in your heart and you open your mouth, even if you do sing like George Jones or whoever these guys are, Johnny Cash, and you sing why? Because you're edifying those who are around you. There's a vertical dynamic and there is a horizontal dynamic when it comes to singing in the church body. I want to remind you that singing is also related to the Word of God. Before we jump off Bible facts, uh, Brother John invited our family to his Sunday school class this morning. And first thing they did is Brother Dick stood and began to read the Word. And it was the complimentary passage of what Ephesians 5 actually says, but listen to how it weaves in the Word. Colossians 3.16, listen to this. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That means let it act as an umpire, feel, it, feel welcome in your, home, in your life, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Part and parcel of being filled with the Holy Spirit, of course, is this speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but also the Word of God is richly dwelling in you, which leads you to sing. Amen? It leads you to want to sing to God. Now, set that aside. Bible facts about singing. If you missed any on the outline, I'd be glad to give them to you. Here's the second thing. Why is there an emphasis on singing in our worship services? Why this emphasis upon singing? Here's the first thing. God sings. Zephaniah 3.17 He will exult over you with loud singing. So the God who is infinite and majestic and eternal and transcendent without limitation in all that He is, He sings. Number two, the Son of God sings. We know that at the Last Supper, when He instituted the Lord's Supper, I'm going to preach on that in a few weeks because... Baptism and Lord's Supper, that's a part of worship. We're going to learn what the Word of God says about baptism and about Lord's Supper. And then on September 11, that night, we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper so that you will actually partake of it. But we know he did that. But they, probably, they actually probably sang Psalm 18, 118 that day. When they went out and they sung a hymn, they probably sang Psalm 118. There's another dimension of that. Found in Hebrews. I don't know if you know that's there or not, but Hebrews chapter 2, 
Verse 11 through 12 gives us Psalm 118 in the New Testament. And notice how the writer of Hebrews ties it together with Christ. Now in Psalm 118, the sweet singer of Israel is who? David. But it's projected and uh, it's, its trajectory doesn't stop with David. The actual real sweet singer of Israel is the Son of God. Because listen to Hebrews 2. The Bible says, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Who is talking in that verse? That is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's the Son of God who saved you and brought you into the family of God. And this text says that the Son of God sings. God sings. The Son of God sings. Of course, we understand that's Trinitarian. They're both God, right? God the Father, God the Son. But notice this. Here's the third thing. As God's image bearers, we were made to sing. As God's image bearer, you were made to sing. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, Next to theology, the queen of the sciences is music. I like that. Next to theology, the queen of the sciences would be music. There is something expressive and reflective about a song and about us singing it. The same is true when you hear music. God designed music to do something to the soul. Y'all agree? God designed it this way. He made us to declare His excellencies. And I don't know if you figured this out or not, but according to Genesis chapter 1, you were made in His image. And He made you to sing. He designed you to express your affections for Him by singing. Singing moves our affections for God. And God has so wired you that the truth of God in your mind is transferred into your soul in many, many ways by you lifting your, your voice to Him and singing a song. This is, can be done with an ancient hymn in a minor key, right? From a sense of crying out to our God. Or it can be done with a victorious declaration of contemporary praise. They're both designed to affect the mind and the heart. That's why God has given us the gift of singing or the, the, the ability to sing. They're both designed to move the heart and move the affections. Singing brings your head and heart together. I recall a pastor giving an illustration about a fellow who had been visiting his church. And he said, all the truth of the gospel was in my head. And he said, I knew it, and I believe it, and I sensed it, but I just I couldn't trust, I couldn't believe and he said, all of a sudden, the congregation was beckoned to stand and sing, How Great Thou Art. And he said, all of a sudden, when he began to sing this particular verse, And when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in, for on the cross... My burden gladly bearing. Listen. He bled and died to take away my sin. He said immediately, immediately, all that truth that was in my head dropped into my soul. 
And immediately I began to trust Jesus with all of my being. See, folks, that's the way God has designed music. The right kind of understanding of who God is, right? You worship God in spirit and in truth. And when you've got that theology in your mind, so often it is music that helps us to tie together the head and the heart. So bad music is bad to sing in church because you're not understanding the correct truth about God. And it is the truth about God that moves your affections. So music, singing, bridges, closes that gap so often between head knowledge and heart affections for God. Now let's end this sermon by talking about why we sing old and new songs. Y'all ready for this? Smile. Yeah, that's right. Don't any of you murmur about this. All right? You know what happened in Numbers when people murmured? God opened up the earth and swallowed up 150,000 Israelites, right? You better be real careful about your murmur. As a matter of fact, have you ever tried to smile and say murmur? Watch this. Murmur. I mean, you realize how bad you look when you do that? Murmur. Go ahead and try it. Go ahead. Look at your neighbor. Go ahead and try it. All right. There better not be any murmuring, right? No murmuring about this. Here's the first thing about old and new. The age of the song is irrelevant. The age of a song is irrelevant. There was a time when Isaac Watts, now check this out, was putting out new contemporary songs for churches. And churches were divided whether or not they should sing Watts or not. Can you believe that? Jonathan Edwards wanted to sing the Watts hymns. So that great theologian, the greatest theologian perhaps that ever lived, Jonathan Edwards, he used Watts hymns. Good for him. I'm glad he did. The age of the song is irrelevant. Number two, blended worship, old and new, actually honors the work of the Spirit in the past and in the work, the work of the Spirit in the present. So singing old and new songs will honor the Holy Spirit's work in the past and in the present. And that's what we're supposed to be doing as a church. God has given gifts to men in all ages of the church. And he gave Watts, he gave Luther, he gave Wesley. God has worked in the past in gifting men to write songs and women. Yet we cannot think for somehow that when Charles Wesley died in the 18th century, that the Spirit of God just quit equipping people to write songs. I don't hear too many amens. But we think like that. Man, when Wesley died, that's it. No more songs. That's just it. Nobody else can write a song. Look, folks, not all hymns are good because they are old. There are some hymns that are old that I, that I, it just grates on me when I hear the theology. I want to stand up and say, no, that's not right. That's not what the Bible says. But we write, we think just because it's old that it's good, but that's not true. And an old hymn, or a bad, a new hymn is not bad just because it's new. What makes a song good or bad is the content of the song. Ah, when Daniel was up here singing that song, when he got to the grace lines, I'm like, right? That grace can change us, and that's what it's about. It's the grace of God changing our lives. So what makes the song good or bad is the content of the song. We don't sing certain songs, and we won't sing certain songs around here because they're not good. If we do, it's like the song that says, there's a new name written down in glory. No, that's not right. There's a name written down in glory. It's not new. You think you caught God off by surprise? 
I mean, think about it. There's not a new name. He knew you in him before the foundation of the world. So when I was a kid and we sang that song, Brother Wayne said, we're not going to sing it that way. We're going to sing, there's a name written down in glory and it's mine. Y'all getting this? All right. So the song, look, if it's theologically terrible, then we don't need to sing it. There are certain spans of time when I grew up where the songs that were written were theologically atrocious. I remember some of those in the upper 70s and early 80s. I mean, touchy-feely songs that had nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Christ, just feel-good, you know, kind of songs. They're like cotton candy. You start off and they're sweet, but after two seconds it's gone. That's the kind of music that was there. But I'm telling you, folks, I'm thankful that we live in a generation today where men have their hats on thinking-wise, they have great theology, and they're writing great songs. We don't need to stand back and say, you're not Charles Wesley. And you're not Luther and you're not Watts. So you can't write a good song. That's not true. They can be written today. I think the biggest issue of worship wars has to do with pride and lack of charity. You need to think about this, folks. Uh, When we get on our high horse and we have our attitudes about music, it's usually a pride issue and we're not being charitable to one another. It's real easy to demonize the new songs or the stuff that we like, uh, demonize the stuff we don't like, and canonize the stuff that we do like. like. We need to guard our hearts when it comes to worship. We need to be charitable to one another. On one hand, you hear people say, well, those hymns, those old hymns, I just can't raise my hands when I'm singing those old hymns. And you have people say, well, I I don't like singing them new songs because I don't like raising my hands. Right? I mean, it's kind of both ways. When it's all said and done, it's your attitude, folks. It's the attitude of the heart. By the way, since I'm in the neighborhood, what, is, what about raising your hands? David said, I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. Every day I call upon you, Lord, and I spread out my hands to you. Lift up your hands in the holy place and bless the Lord. Now, raising hands is a physical act. Would you all not agree with that? It is actually a physical posture. The raising of hands, obviously, can, it can express many, many things. Sometimes it expresses a longing. Sometimes it's triumph before the Lord. Is there anything that's triumphant in our faith? You better say yes, right? There's something triumphant that is wonderful about our faith. Sometimes it's surrender before God. Sometimes it's an expression of gratitude. Now, of course, there's nowhere written in the script in our church service where David's going to say, all right, raise your hands. That drives me nutty. Or a sign comes up, clap at this moment. I mean, folks, that's not worship. But there is a deep yearning expressed in the raising of hands so often that is all of God and awesome and wonderful when it is you worshiping the Lord about His truth. And don't let the people who do things for a show detract from you doing it to honor God, even in this corporate body. Because sometimes it does happen for a show, but that's up to the worshiper and the God that he is worshiping. But don't let somebody hijack your expression and your posture, because so often people do it with a show. Now let's end this way. Let's ask the question, what might Christ's exalting expressiveness look like in our church when it comes to music? Well, folks, what comes across your mind and heart when you hear no power on earth, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from my hand? What's your response, folks? 
you ought to raise your hand in thankfulness to God that He saw fit to redeem your soul. No scheme of man, no power on earth. God's plan cannot be thwarted, right? What about the song, My sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole was nailed to the tree and I bear it no more. Nailed to the cross. Well, your expression might be that you kneel in gratitude and adoration because your sins are paid for. I mean, you may want to get down on your knees in the service while we're worshiping. Go ahead and praise God that way for what He's done for you because He's worthy. Amen? That may be your expression. What about when we sing a song like, How Great Is Our God? Sing with me. You know what that means? you got to sing with me. Right? Sing with me how great is our God. God. That's an acclamation of praise to our God because He is the powerful and reigning King. doesn't matter what Hillary does when she gets in office. It doesn't matter what Trump does if he gets in office. You know why? Because our God, the Bible says in the psalm, causes their hearts to flow like a river wherever He wants them to go. So God is ultimately in control. He reigns, folks. He's not worried about this at all. He reigns. After singing a song like that, his, he's powerful and he's reigning, reigning. Now, if I had no other choice, most of the time I'd rather sit quietly or sit down quietly before the Lord and sing rich doctrinal songs with a lot of depth before the Lord. I would choose that any day than singing the shallow man-centered songs and people are running around jumping, screaming, and hollering. I'd much rather sit quietly with deep doctrinal songs. But here's the deal. We're called to do both. Not sing shallow man-centered songs, but we are called by God to have deep theological reflection, but also together with joyful expression to God. I can't tell you what an impact it makes on people's lives when they're lost and they don't know Jesus. And of course, the first priority of the church is to go to the lost, not to get the lost to come to the church. For the most part, that's, that's not the way you win the world, okay, folks? But if there's a lost person in here, how dare we stand before the King who saved our souls and not sing with joyful expression? Right? Because you're witnessing to them through your song about the Lord that you belong to. Our response may look different. We may not, we're not going to all look the same. I see Brother Jim Bloom over here that served. Where are you? Yeah, there he is. Served in Papua New Guinea for 40 years. Does our worship look like theirs? Nah. I guarantee you, if you're in Papua New Guinea or you're in, Guata, you're in Guatemala or Peru, for some of you, you're going to be real uncomfortable. Look, folks, but they're worshiping the God, our God and expressing to Him with gratitude and thankfulness for what He did for them. So in different cultures, it's going to look different. That's why most of you, if not all of you, need to get on a plane with your pastor at some time uh, every how many years God keeps me here, which I hope is till I die. And when that happens, in that meantime, you need to get on a plane and go to a foreign mission trip. You say, well, I don't want to do that. Well, get over it. And you need to go. You know why? Because you need to see other people in the world who love Jesus other than you. And see how they worship. See what people look like that have actually gone to jail and been beaten for the cause of Christ. And hear their songs. To hear them sing when they've actually it, when it actually cost them something to serve the Lord. Right? So, in different cultures, 
It's going to be different. But we've got something that's worth singing about. Do we? Do we have something that's worth singing about? We have a Savior who loves us. We have a Savior who came down from heaven with all of His regal royalty, came down to this earth, condescended here, put on skin like mine and yours. Fully God, fully man. That's something to sing about. We have a heaven and we have eternal life waiting for us. We have a God that is presently mighty to save. We have a Savior who laid down His life and had the power to take it up. And guess what? He's coming back again. That's exactly why we have something to sing about. Why sing, folks? I hope you know now why we sing. What we're here for as a church body. And my prayer is that you'll think about this. When you wake up next Sunday morning, well, actually all of life is worship. So you ought to be singing praise to God and praising Him Monday through Saturday. And when we come in here corporately, and in a few weeks we're going to evaluate our worship. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, uh, what a healthy church looks like. Maybe we can start now asking our God before Him, Lord, uh, what is my song? What is it like? Am I expressing to you the worth that is due to your name, individually and corporately? Some of you may be here today and you don't know the Lord at all. You're not saved. And I'm telling you, He's mighty to save, right? Our God is mighty to save. The Bible teaches us straightforward, for God in this manner loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, His only one-of-a-kind Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but will have eternal life. I feel like I need to tell you all something. There's a danger in that verse. You're going to perish without Christ. We forget that, don't we? Will not perish, but have eternal life. The flip side of that, the opposite of that is, if you die in your sins, you are going to perish in hell. That's the danger in John 3.16. But there's a great design in John 3.16. For God so loved. Aren't you thankful? He just didn't say, well, I love you. But he did something about it. He loved us so much that he gave. That's an awesome, awesome design of love. Yes, there's a danger. But there's an awesome design, and that's design of love. There's a duty in this verse. You know it? That whoever believes. It's in the present tense. You, be, you believe and you continue to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ only for salvation. Those who believe. And then there is a destiny for those. Shall not perish but have eternal life. He did that for you. Maybe you don't know the Lord today. You need to trust Jesus. Turn from sin and self. That means a 180, not a 360. A 180. Turn from sin and self Trust Jesus only that He was sufficient to pay the debt for your sin. Forgive you, give you His righteousness and a perfect standing before the Father. That's what He offers you today. Christian, evaluate your life. Church member, evaluate why you're here. What's, what's singing for and why? Let's pray. Father, uh, what an awesome day to be in your church. Lord, thank you for the blessings of life. Lord, I, I've given this the best I know how to encourage people what your word says, together with affections that we should have before you. Lord, help us never get over being saved. Help us never get over the transformation that you made in our lives. Lord, help us to be charitable and love one another. The most important thing is the theology in the song. 
What does it say about our God? Lord, help us all to think about the day that you saved us. Lord, think about what it means to be a child of God. To think about how singing is going on in heaven even today. Around the clock, without fail, because of who you are. Lord, for that one individual in the congregation that is lost, and they're in danger of spending eternity in hell, I want to remind them of the beauty and loveliness of Jesus. Thank you, Father, for the Son of God who came down to this world. You gave. What an awesome cost that was involved in the giving of the Son to save us from our sins. God, help us not forget that. And Lord, for believers, God, help us to be in tune with your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.